Geopolitics and Empire is joined once again by lawyer, professor, and prolific author Dan Kovalik. His books include The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, The Plot to Attack Iran, The Plot to Control the World, The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, No More War, and Cancel This Book. Welcome, Dan. I see you still haven't been canceled. Uh, that's good news. Yeah, knock on wood, as we say. Yes, not yet. Not yet. So yeah, yeah, it's good news and it's good to talk again. And there's a lot going on. And you know, reading your book titles, there that's a lot of plots. Perhaps <laughs> you, perhaps your book on Russia should have been also titled The Plot to Overthrow Russia, given what we're seeing now. Um, yes, yes. A lot of things, you know, have been that you've been writing about are now coming to a head. The confrontation between the US and Russia now taking place in Ukraine. Uh, Iran sits there on the sidelines waiting to see what happens, but meanwhile is working ever more closely with Russia and China. We even saw the U.S. pay a quick visit to Venezuela, I, I believe, to see if they could get some some oil or something. I don't know what's going on there. And so, you know, what what's what are your thoughts on what's going on in Ukraine and where we are uh, at the uh, you know in this moment uh, in this juncture? Yeah, well, we live in a very interest in very interesting times, um, and um, you know, I think we won't know for some time what all this means. But I do think that what we're seeing is a shift away from the United States and the West and a shift towards the East, towards Russia and China primarily. Um, and that we now live in a multipolar world. I mean, that's been developing for some time now. But I think the Ukraine uh, invasion really marks the dramatic beginning of that multipolar world. Um, you know, this is probably not a popular sentiment, but I mean, what I'm, my gut tells me is that, you know, for years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. in particular and NATO have had their way wherever they wanted. Invade Iraq twice, uh, invade Afghanistan, destroy Libya, uh, destroy Serbia. Uh, destroy Somalia, you know, on and on. And the world basically stood by and took it because it had to. And what we see in Ukraine is Russia finally saying, we're not going to take it anymore, you know. And I think what Russia clearly saw, and it's uncontroverted, is that the U.S. intended on destabilizing if not destroying Russia, that that was the plan. There's that Rand Corporation study that's now been going around where it actually talks about a, a you know several point plan for destabilizing Russia. Uh, you know, you had the coup in Ukraine in 2014, which brought to power an ultra right government that had in the military ultra right elements that attacked the ethnic Russians in the Donbass region. Uh, 14,000 people died in that conflict. You had the CIA training mercenaries in Ukraine to kill Russians. You had Eric Prince's organization, formerly known as Blackwater, also doing the same in Ukraine. Uh, you know, the goal was to destabilize Russia, and, and it was working to some extent, to the extent that you had hundreds of thousands of people immigrating from the Donbass into Russia. And 
Russia said, we're not just, we're not going to stand by anymore and let this happen. And, you know, no one wants war. I don't want war. You know, I have a book called No More War. I'm against it. But I think we have to understand what Russia was seeing and what they were just not willing to tolerate anymore. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, when the smoke clears and what kind of evidence Russia has. They claimed that there was a plan Ukraine had not only to attack the Donbass, you know, in a massive invasion, but also that there were plans to attack Russia itself. And we'll see if they can prove that. Uh, but it's not beyond, of course, reason to think that that was the case and that the goal also was then to move to, to, towards China which is still not off the table, I think, for the West. So anyway, I guess that's my short version of what I see happen at the moment. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. And as you said, it's really hard to talk about this in the environment today, especially in the West. I think the rest of the world, uh, we've seen a few instances, especially on Indian TV, um, where they get it. You know, the rest of the world kind of understands, uh, as you outlined, but it's the people in the West who, who just don't get it. And it's really, really hard to broach this topic. But also what amazes me is the amount of sort of like plausible deniability where in the West, they say it's kind of like game theory where they put Russia in a position where it's forced to act like the U.S. hasn't directly attacked Russia. And as you as, as you said, Russia is def defending itself, but they're able to say, ha, you know, we haven't attacked you yet. You know, we're about to. Um, look, you know, you're the bad guy for attacking Ukraine. And so, I mean, your thoughts on this, this media atmosphere, and it's, it's you know, it's kind of like game theory. I, I, I uh, compare it to what happened with U.S. and Japan and Pearl Harbor. You know, we've got the classified documents to show U.S. government statements that said we want to put Japan basically in the corner and force them to attack us first, which we can then use any which way we want as a pretext. And, you know, they cut off Japan's um, oil and did just that. And so, you know, what are your thoughts on, on this uh, media atmosphere? No, I think the media atmosphere is insane. 
I mean, again, I understand. Well, first of all, the media shouldn't be taking a position on anything. They're supposed to be giving the news, right? Especially outlets like NPR, New York Times. They've utterly abdicated that role. They are now firmly in the camp of propagandists. They are merely wartime propagandists giving one side of the story. They never talked about the war in the Donbass that killed 14,000 people. I mean, they had some limited coverage here and there, but it was years ago. And then they just stopped talking about it. They won't talk about it now. They poo-poo the idea that there's neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Well, we know, in fact, there's a significant element that actually has an extraordinary amount of power there. You know, there was a great article by Max Blumenthal a few weeks ago talking about how when Zelensky was elected in 2019, first of all, he was elected on a peace platform to make peace with Russia. And that he did want to start reigning in these neo-Nazis, but the neo-Nazis threatened to kill him if he did. So he relented, you know, so how much power do they have to be able to coerce the president of their own country? Obviously, they they have a significant amount of power. They've committed a significant amount of atrocities. Again, Amnesty International was reporting on this in 2014, 2015. But again, the Western media just mocks it. They have to admit that, yeah, there are some neo-Nazis, but basically they portray them like, one, they're insignificant, and or two, that they're somehow good Nazis, right? And it's absolutely bizarre because you have, in the U.S., and Canada, you have liberals calling everyone who disagrees with them Nazis, right? The truckers are Nazis in Canada. Everyone's a Nazi. But then when they're confronted with real Nazis who really are torturing and killing people, they want to excuse them and overlook them. And so we really are living in an Orwellian world of doublespeak. And those who just challenge the narrative, who have questions, are canceled are losing jobs, you know, all of it, RT America just shut down overnight. Very good friends of mine who worked there just lost their jobs overnight, which is significant because, I mean, the thing, the weird thing that's happened in the U.S., and Sam Husseini wrote about this, good guy, you know, is that really there weren't any left-wing or progressive media outlets to work for anymore in the U.S. for the most part. So all the good people went over to RT or Press News, which was run by Iran, because you could actually make a living at those outlets giving alternative, you know, news. People like Chris Hedges and Jesse Ventura, Abby Martin for a while. She quit, but she was there for a while. Anya Parampale was there for a while. Um, you know, good people. And then again, so that is an outlet that's just gone and there's really nothing left significantly to take its place where you can actually be a journalist, get paid, make a living and question the narrative uh, that, that bolsters U.S. intervention around the world. And that's very sad, obviously. And where does it leave us? I'm not sure. You know, we thought years ago that social media was going to be our savior. Oh, well, we have this outlet and I can get thousands of followers and I can you know, give my alternative view of the world, and I'd be allowed to do that. And that has started to shut down in a significant way. YouTube has started to 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 shut down in a significant way. You know, 
for one example, Abby Martin, who was on RT for years, but quit because she opposed their position, if it was their position, but I guess a prevailing position there, uh, which supported uh, Crimea's annexation uh, by Russia. She quit, but notwithstanding that she quit over that, she's lost 600 episodes on YouTube. They just erased them. And all of us are facing that potential that tomorrow, you know, a life's work, uh, you know, that's been saved on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter could just be disappeared. Uh, you know, we could even face our bank accounts being frozen or seized, right? I mean, I think about that on almost a daily basis. Like, do I need to make a plan B? Do I need to have funds in foreign, you know, shores? Do I, should I just start buying gold like some kind of a survivalist? I don't know, you know, because everything seems up for grabs. And the irony of ironies is that the liberal elites are happy with this situation. They're happy with the censorship. They're happy with the vilification of people who question the narrative. And, you know, for me, honestly, I, I, at first, I was really, you know, worried for myself vis-a-vis -vis all that. But, I mean, frankly, I've kind of come to the view that, you know, there's another world out there, a vaster world in the East, in the global South that doesn't buy into this. And maybe ultimately that's where I need to turn my attention. And maybe ultimately that's where I need to live. I mean, I don't know. You know, this may become a very inhospitable place. It's my home. It's my country. So I guess, you know, I have kids here uh, that I like to be with. Uh, so and I parent elderly parents who are still here. So I guess I'll stay here as long as I can. But at some point, maybe that will become practically impossible. Yeah, I think I think often as well of the debanking. I think that's coming in, you know, come down to Mexico, join us here. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and the YouTube, I just got a second strike on YouTube and was suspended for two weeks and just got out of that. Now I'm afraid to post anything there. I'm on the other platforms, but still there's, you know, an important visibility for someone on YouTube. And it's funny you mentioned and then Twitter, my Twitter was temporarily suspended recently. So, yeah, it's just getting nuts. And funny you mentioned Sam. I'll be talking to him in a few weeks. Um, uh, you wrote an article recently, and I'll re read it, uh, read a section, quote, Russia's operations in Ukraine understood as a strike against NATO aggression and encirclement signals the end of the U.S. and NATO's ability to act unil unilaterally around the world at will and without any repercussions. Russia had drawn a line in the sand and once crossed by the West, it acted militarily to defend its interests. Um, and you said that at the beginning and um, as well, you know, uh, a number of countries are not following America's lead. I think China just yesterday pointed out that 140 of 190 countries did not follow America's lead on sanctions against Russia. We saw Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan recently declare, uh, you know, the U.S. was now just now attempting to overthrow him for not following, uh, you know, their lead for getting too cozy with Putin and, and, and China. India is behaving boldly and so um you know what are your thoughts there it just it's, it just seems it really does seem like we've been talking about this for a long time but it really does seem that th th this is th this is it no yeah the u.s empire is collapsing and you know ironically the u.s is doing things with these these sanctions that are going to speed that up right because 
they are going, and I've said this for years, they're going to effectively sanction themselves out of the world economy. They're making the dollar uh, weaker because it's impossible for most of the world to trade on the dollar because they're under some type of sanctions, right? And this is only going to speed it up with, with you know, kicking Russia off to SWIFT and that sort of thing that Russia and China and India and Iran and now even maybe Saudi Arabia are going to start, you know, trading on the Chinese yuan. And the U.S. dollar is not going to be the reserve currency of the world. Again, for people like me who live in America, who are paid in dollars, who save our money in dollars, it's not good news. It's going to become more and more worthless, right? But the U.S. has acted in a way that would guarantee that the rest of the world is responding, and frankly, quickly. What, what is very clear is that, as usual, you know, the, the hyper-capitalist U.S. did not plan ahead on this. They did not foresee these horrible repercussions. Um, Russia and China did. Clearly, Russia and China have been planning to deal with this for a long time. They were ready. And India was ready. The rest of the world is ready. They're tired of this. They're tired of being bullied by the United States. I mean, let's be totally honest. The U.S. thinks it can dominate the world. It thinks, you know, even the nice human rights president, Jimmy Carter, announced the Carter Doctrine, where, you know, he announced the U.S. could act militarily in the Persian Gulf if its interests were attacked there. Not to, you know, Notwithstanding the fact it's called the Persian Gulf. It's the Persians, right? The U.S. thinks it can act unilaterally in the South China Sea. It's called the South China Sea. It's insane. And those days are over. The world has said, no, nunkumas, we're not going to put up with this. And most of the world is cheering, even if quietly cheering to themselves, saying, yes, it's time. It's over. It's long overdue. Um, and that's a profound shift. And, you know, again, what all the implications of that shift are going to be is, is unclear. But I do think the days of, of U.S. unilateral power are over. Yeah, and I, I was listening to uh, Russian Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov give an interview recently, and, um, you know, the West was pressing him, and he just matter-of-factly stated, you know, no, no rubles, no gas, that's it, you know, and they're trying to put the blame on Russia, saying, are you going to cut off the gas? Well, I mean, if you don't pay us in rubles, no, no gas, and so that's going to, as you said, uh, lead the way towards more de-dollarization, and uh, you also tweeted, um, uh, you tweeted a story describing a fall in the living standards. So not just the United States, but you, you were talking about a fall in the living standards in the UK, not seen since the 1950s. And you argue, again, we're, we'll be seeing the same in America. I mean, I've seen this coming for more than 15 years. I left the US in 15 years ago, and I could kind of see this coming way down the line. And I just kind of decided to escape back then. Um, I don't think Americans will handle this well psychologically like i'm already mentally there you know i'm here in mexico i'm integrated in mexico i mean i'm i'm, I'm ready but i think many americans they're gonna it's gonna be a hard wake-up call to realize they're no longer number one you know what what are your thoughts on this you know well and more importantly they're gonna have to reconcile to the fact that their standard of living 
that they've been used to for decades is over. You know, it's already over. I mean, let's let's face. I mean, I look around me. The number of homeless people, the number of people without jobs, the number of people without health care. This is already a dystopia, right? And that's going to get worse. And that's what they're going to have to cope with. And that's what they're going to have to organize against to reclaim a certain amount of social equity in a country that is horribly stratified economically. But what I'm afraid is going to happen, at least in the short term, is that people are going to decide, oh, this is Russia's fault. And so they're not going to go after the ruling class, you know, whose fault it really is. And I'm seeing that. I, for example, uh, on Facebook, I saw all these people, all these liberals, including union activists that I know that I worked with at the Steelworkers, saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't be complaining against rising gas prices because at least you're not living in a bunker in Ukraine. It's like. They're literally apologizing for rising gas prices. Uh, meanwhile, the oil and gas companies are making record profits. So instead of criticizing them and saying, hey, we should organize against them, they're saying this is Russia's fault for attacking Ukraine, and at least you're not in Ukraine being attacked. So just shut up about it. These are activists saying this. This does not bode well. For the United States, I don't see a movement out there um, ready to fight for working people's uh, standard of living, to fight for poor people. I see a very indoctrinated left, if you even want to call it that, um, that is aligned with the ruling class. Um, and they're aligned with the ruling class based on their fears and hatred towards Russians, towards the Chinese. Of course, that's an old-timey way for the ruling class to rule, right? They get you to to uh, want to fight foreign wars in, instead of fighting the class war. And that's where we're at. That's where the mentality is. And I saw that for a long time working at the Steelworkers, which I did for 26 years. Their anti-Chinese rhetoric was about as bad as anyone you can imagine. And when Trump was elected and the steelworkers opposed Trump, they supported Clinton. Um, our president um, at the time, Leo Girard, president of the steelworkers, said, oh, Trump stole our issues. You know, stole the anti-Chinese issues. And what I told people, I said, no, it's actually worse than that. You help create Trump with your anti-Chinese rhetoric. You poisoned the industrial working class in the U.S. with these anti-Chinese sentiments, which derailed their ability and their desire for real social change in the U.S. Instead, they just blamed deindustrialization on China, blamed their problems on China, which honestly is not productive at all because, you know, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. You know, there's nothing to be done about it if it truly is China's fault. Instead, we should have been telling them you should be protesting Apple and other companies that are doing, you know, moving all their businesses to China, paying little wages 
and then selling the products here at huge prices. Those are the villains here, right? But instead, we vilified the Chinese, and that just leads to complete apathy politically. And that's, again, that's where we find ourselves. Um, As a leftist, as a longtime activist, it is frustrating because what do you do with that? How do you organize in that atmosphere? It's very difficult. And again, for the first time ever, I've decided that maybe at least for a time, it will be almost impossible to do that, to organize in this country. And maybe again, the focus needs to be on other countries. You know, we are not the essential nation. You know, uh, as Obama claimed, as Madeleine Albright claimed, we ain't the only game in town. And I think the quicker you come to that conclusion and start acting accordingly, the less frustration you're going to have as a leftist. Yeah, one of my favorite solutions is dealing with these monopolies is antitrust legislation, but that doesn't seem (laughs) in the foreseeable future uh, that, you know, that anything like that's going to happen. Just to turn quick to Latin America, I saw you post uh, an article about a Bolivian top secret dossier showing uh, detailing NATO's expansion into South America. And that's something I've been always following. I mean, I think for me, it's crazy that NATO is like getting into South America. We've seen them um, get uh, Colombia on board as a non-NATO global partner or something, and then uh, wanting to get Brazil on board. Uh, They've talked about labeling narcos as as terrorists which i recently spoke to ed calderon expert and i would agree that narcos are terrorists but i don't want them but if they were defined as terrorists then we could see us and nato troops you know in in mexico and and latin america and that's not something that i would like to see and just kind of this mission creep is is pretty insane they basically want to become the global uh police force and so you know to get your comments on that as well as you know mexico is pushing back as well. We saw AMLO say we're not going to do sanctions, and uh, some Mexican politicians formed a uh, Russia-Mexico friendship association. So uh, even here, you know, people are saying, "Yeah, we're we're going to defy Uncle Sam, and we're not going to go along anymore." And so, you know, your thoughts on Latin America? No, it's it's very exciting. And how could they take any other position? Again, they have been bullied and attacked and intervened in for now well over a century by the United States. They have suffered coups, right-wing coups, fascist coups, genocides like in Guatemala, uh, 200,000 dead because of the U.S.'s policies there. Um, And you can go on and on, Chile with Pinochet. How could they take any other position except they don't want the U.S. in Latin America anymore? They want help with real development. And there's one country amongst others really offering it, and that's China. You know, the U.S. comes in and they destroy and China comes in and they build. I saw this great quote. I think it was from definitely from someone in Africa. It might have been Kenya, but I'm not positive who said, you know, China visits and we end up with a hospital. Britain visits. We end up with a lecture. Of course, you could add to the quote, the U.S., visits and we end up with a city torn down, right? Um, and, and we have to wake up to that, that, that the U.S. is not playing a productive role in the world at all, is not supporting real development. Never really has, but at least at some point as a fig leaf, it did a few things, right? Um, now it doesn't even bother trying. 
Now it's just pure power politics. And Latin America is saying no. And again, you have this glorious uh, event where the U.S. went hat in hand to Nicolas Maduro, who doesn't even recognize as the president of Venezuela, begging for oil. And you saw Maduro, whose economy has really improved under his leadership. He's done an amazing job, by the way. I think he's one of the unsung heroes um, in Latin America and the world. And I think history will smile on him. You saw him be able to tell the U.S. to go pound salt. Um, and you're going to see more of that. Again, the Monroe Doctrine still exists. But it is, it is being challenged in a very big way. And I think you're going to continue seeing it challenged. Even Bolsonaro, right? Right-wing leader who got into power with the help of the U.S., you know, through the uh, car wash campaign against Lula and Dilma. Even he won't sanction Russia. He even visited Russia, right, before the invasion. Um, again, the days of the U.S. telling these countries what to do and how to live their lives is over. And I welcome it, really. I mean, that's been my life since, you know, being an early adult has been to support these anti-imperialist struggles. And you're seeing now these countries uh, really push back. And that gives me hope. Again, I I'm looking outside for, for, for inspiration because I don't see a lot here at the U.S. that gives me much inspiration. It's the truth of the matter. You know, you have a culture that's just totally focused on celebrity culture. You know, they care more about the slap at the Oscars than they do about 400,000 people dying in Yemen. Um, this is a country that's really lost its way. And, uh, you know, I've tried, many of us have tried to point to other ideas, to other ways of being. And I think, you know, um, with with very little success probably but um again there's another world out there to to go to to defend and i think that that's worth doing it's my last question real quick uh on the situation in ukraine if you see there's a talk of you know world war three and escalation um i'm i'm i think you know we could see a more like a 1990s yugoslavia type situation where it becomes protracted not that i want to just i'm just look trying to look at things objectively um, but, you know, just final thought, do you think, you know, we're in a World War Three situation? Well, look, it's always possible. I think the U.S. certainly wants to to keep this conflict going. But just this morning, I don't know if you saw it. I mean, there's breaking news that Ukraine and Russia have reached agreement on some very important issues that Russia in response is going to start pulling back from Kiev. Uh, it looks like there may be a face to face meeting between Putin and Zelensky, which Putin was not going to agree to until there were some real agreements in principle on important security issues. So I am hoping there will be a negotiated solution to this. And that is what the world needs. The U.S., I think, does not welcome it. But I think Zelensky has decided quite rightly that the West has set him up and set Ukraine up badly. You know, it's this classic thing like, you know, they were like, hey, let's throw a snowball at that guy. And Zelensky launches his and then the U.S. just holds back and waits for Ukraine to be clobbered. That's exactly what happened. Zelensky sees it 
And I think Zelensky is going to make a separate peace with Russia, and I think he should, and I think we should welcome that. So that that is what I'm hoping for. All right, that would be uh, good news. Uh, where's the best place for people to find you uh, online? Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, you can find me. I think the best place is on Twitter at Daniel M. Kovalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. I'm also on Facebook. And you can buy my books wherever books are sold. And you can find all of them and where to buy them at skyhorsepublishing.com. I'll include all the links in the description. And yes, everyone go follow Dan Kovalik on Twitter. Check out his books, his projects, and Spasiba for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.